0: 22, verse 12, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to everyone according to his work. And I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life, and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs, and sorcerers, and sexually immoral, and murderers, and idolaters, And whoever loves and practices a lie. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Well, we're going to spend most of our time tonight on verse 17, but we want to consider this passage under these three headings. There's a twofold payment, verses 12 to 15. And then secondly, there's a personal testimony in verse 16, and then a gracious invitation, verse 17. First, notice the twofold payment, verse 12. And behold, I am coming quickly, And my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Now this phrase, everyone according to his work, refers both to the saved and unsaved. It's referring to the fact that Jesus will be the judge in that final day. And he will give to the wicked their reward, which is described down in verse 15. And he'll give to the righteous their reward, which is described in verse 14. Now, the difficulty, though, might be, why is, why does Jesus refer to this as his reward? Well, simply put, it's described as Jesus' reward because he judges both the living and the dead, the righteous and the wicked, as a reward for his suffering. He suffered, he died, and that death, of course, took place at the hands of godless men. And thus it's only right that Jesus should repay them. <laughs> Furthermore, he saved other men, his elect, and he indwelt them by his spirit and he enabled them to obey him. That's verse 14. And thus he will reward them. But the important thing here is everybody is rewarded according to his works. The righteous are, record, are rewarded according to their work. And the wicked are recorded according to their work according to their work. This is a just judgment. Brethren, how many times have we seen through the book of Revelation and before that in different studies over the years that the final day of judgment will be based on works. Nobody goes to heaven because of works, but nobody goes to heaven without them. Faith works. And thus works prove your faith. And everywhere, brethren, Everywhere the Bible makes exceedingly clear that the day of judgment will be based upon works. Now, let me show you that very quickly, just in case there's a little lingering doubt. I'll clarify that in a moment, too, by the way. But look to just one text. Look to Romans 2. Verse 4 speaks about the goodness and forbearance and patience of God that should lead the wicked to repentance. In light of how good God is, how forbearing God has been, you ought to repent from your sins and find forgiveness. But tragedy by nature, man doesn't do that. Verse 5. But in accordance with the hardness of, and impenitence of your heart, you're treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. This is a righteous judgment. Now watch it. It's a righteous judgment. Now notice how he describes it. Verse 6. Who will render to each one according to his works. Now, that's why I'm saying that our text, when it says that Jesus will give to all men according to his works, it includes the righteous and the unrighteous, because it seems evident that we have the same concept here, don't we? It's a quotation, verse 6, it's a quotation from Psalm 62 and verse 12. It's probably what Jesus is alluding to in Revelation 22, all right? Who will render to each one according to his deeds. Now notice verse 7. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good. Notice how the righteous are described. Seek for glory, honor, and immortality. See, that's works, right? They endure by patience and endurance in good works. Verse 8. But to those who are self-seeking. And do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. They're going to get indignation and wrath. That will be their portion. That will be their reward. To use the the language again of Revelation 22. Tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does. This concerns works, brethren. Who does evil. Somebody says, well, judgment will only be based on belief if you believe or not. That's just a flat Bold-faced lie. Obviously, unbelief is a sin. People say, well, why do those go to hell who've never heard the gospel? They don't go to hell because they never heard the gospel. They go to hell because they trespass upon God's law. Tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil. Listen, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. Verse 10, now he goes back to the righteous. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone Everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. And then he goes on to say that that judgment upon the wicked will be proportionate to their knowledge. The Gentile, the pagan, who's never heard the gospel and never even heard the law, the Ten Commandments in its written form, in its codified form will be judged less severely, but severely still they shall be judged because they have the law, the remains of it, the echo of it in their heart. But those who've sinned against the law, that is, especially the Jew, but anybody who's heard of the gospel and the law, they'll be judged more severely. In other words, judgment will be based upon knowledge. How much knowledge have you had and how much knowledge have you sinned against? But surely this text, and I can turn you to many others, I hope illustrates the fact or proves the fact that in Revelation 22 and verse 12, when our Savior says, I'm coming and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work, he's referring both to the wicked and to the righteous. Now, I could also prove that and, we, and I'll do that now. From this passage itself, because he then goes and speaks about the righteous in verse 14 and the unrighteous in 15. Notice first the righteous, verse 14. Blessed are those who do his commandments. Again, the stress is upon doing, isn't it? That they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. Now, before I go further, I have to here pause for a second, unfortunately, and just quickly address a textual variant in verse 12. Some of your translations, if you have an NIV or a New American Standard or ESV, have verse 12 very differently, don't you? Instead of saying, or verse 14 very differently, instead of saying, Blessed are those who do his commandments. It says, Blessed are those who wash their robes. But brethren, the context favors the old and new King James translation. I think what happened over the years, somebody was just put out by how strong how strong verse 14 is put. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have their right to the tree of life and enter through the gates into the city. And for whatever reason, they put in the margin this variant uh, statement uh, about washing one's robes and it eventually found itself into some manuscripts and so you find it in in some of your translations. But the context is very clear and very evident that the New and Old King James is to be preferred at this point because the context is on doing. Now it's true, isn't it, brethren, that those who do the commandments have first washed their robes. But you know, the interesting thing is, if you just stick with that phrase, they've washed their robes. Again, that's in the, uh, in the revised text. It's a textual issue. If you just stick with the book of Revelation, it actually uses that imagery twice. And the first time it speaks of justification and forgiveness. But the second time in Revelation, the washing of our robes, it actually refers to regeneration and sanctification. Brother, it's all true. That, that's the bottom line. It's all true. We are justified. We have been forgiven because of the blood of Jesus. Our, our guilty robes have been washed in in our justification. But also, our filthy our filthy rags or robes have been washed in our regeneration and in our sanctification. And it's neither one or the other. And it's the second one, regeneration and sanctification, that argues the first one. Right, that's that's clear from so many texts. I mean, it's, it's clear from what we saw last week with 1 John. How do we know, John says over and again, That we're we're Christians. How do we know that we've been born again? How do we know that we've been saved? How do you know that we've been accepted in Jesus Christ? Because what? We love God and the brethren. Or we keep the commandments. So again, keeping the commandments and loving God, or as the text has it in verse 14, doing his commandments, doesn't make you Christian. It just illustrates the fact that you're Christian. Right? We We all, I think, know that. Brethren, simply put, no works save us, but Jesus works. But when you believe on Jesus, then as the song we sang, in light of what he's done, he deserves what? He deserves my soul, my life, my all. And and if your life doesn't reflect that, generally speaking, that he is worthy of your soul, your life, and your all, then you have to question whether or not you you're a believer. But remember what we said last week in terms of assurance. We have to use our works as a secondary basis or grounds of assurance, but not the primary. Jesus' works are the sole basis for our justification. And they're the primary basis for our assurance. There's the secondary basis for assurance, and that's our works. But with reference to our justification, there's no primary and secondary. That's Rome. Rome says that in terms of our justification, Jesus' works and our works work together. That's a lie from the very pit of hell. But it's also alive from the pit of hell to say that you can believe on Jesus and not have works, right? James makes very plain that faith that doesn't work is useless. It can't save you. It's not true, right? So I, so personally, again, I, I would suggest that the uh, Old and New King James has the, has the right uh, rendition here, the right text translated into English. Blessed are those who do his commandments. And the reason, again, I say that is because the whole context argues for that. But you can appreciate why a scribe likely wanted to alter that and add into it this other idea. It's true. I don't think it's true necessarily of the text, though it's true of the Bible. All right. So this phrase have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city is speaking about a gospel right. It's talking about an adoptive right. Okay. just think of it like this. It's not like. We deserve it. But a child who's adopted and brought into the family, he gets the inheritance, right? Just as much as the naturally born child gets the inheritance. That's the idea. There's a right to the child. He has a right to the inheritance. It's a gracious right. It's a gospel right in this sense. But it's a right. And notice how John um, uh, speaks of heaven. A right to the tree of life. It's going back to the garden, isn't it? Remember at the beginning of the chapter, we saw that John speaks of heaven in terms of paradise regained. Because we lost the right to the tree of life in Adam the first, we gain a right to the tree of life in Adam the last. And then uh, then you have the... uh, the two imageries of a garden and a city brought together again in this little phrase in verse 14, and may enter through the gates into the city. Remember just previously, John has likened heaven both to a city and to a garden or to paradise. In contrast to this, verse 15, we find there are others who have no right to the tree and thus access into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. You see, the wicked are described in terms of their practice. And that's why I've said that the righteous in verse 14 are also described in terms of their practice. Now, they're called dogs, obviously, in a symbolic way. They're not literally dogs. It's it's a term that you'll find in the scriptures to describe sometimes Gentiles, or at least that's how the Jews thought of Gentiles, because the Jews didn't like dogs. And so the children have a right into the city, the people of God, but conversely, the wicked are outside the gates. And he describes them in this terrible way. It's, if you go back to verse 11. It's really the same thing. He was unjust. Let him be unjust still. That's the wicked. That's verse 15. He was righteous. Again that's practical piety brother. Practical righteousness. Let him be righteous. That's verse 14. And Jesus is the judge. Verse 12. He's the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He alone has the right to judge mankind and he will give to them in accordance to their works. Now that brings us to verse 16 in a personal testimony. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Brother, this is a tremendous text. Now, I've called it a personal testimony uh, because it's Jesus who's testifying through his angel. Okay, so the angels, the angels spoke to John. Remember, twice John was so enraptured with what the angel was telling him that he fell down to worship him. But this, don't, but don't, Forget this fact, brethren, that while Jesus speaks through the angel, the revelation he gives is his, right? That's how it starts. If you, if you remember, I don't know what it was, probably a year ago or maybe a little bit more. When we started the book of Revelation, do you remember how the book starts? 1-1, one, one. the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, So Jesus is giving the revelation, albeit through his angel. And it's for this reason our Savior then describes himself as to say, I have not only the right to to reward the righteous and the wicked, to repay the righteous and the wicked in harmony to their deeds, but I also have the right to re- reveal this truth, as I've done for the last 22 chapters, given the fact that I am the root and the offspring, the bright and the morning star. Now, these uh, I, I, let's look at these in turn, then. The bright and morning star. Oh, let's back up. I'm sorry. First, to the root and offspring of David. Now, these terms, of course, these titles are borrowed from Isaiah 11, verse 1 and 10. And they underscore the two natures of the person of Christ the root and offspring of David. He's the root of David because he's God, he's the offspring of David because he's man. He's the God-man. So it underscores his dual nature, or natures. Uh, And then the next phrase, the next uh, statement, the bright morning star, uh, again, these are borrowed from the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, Numbers 24, 17 is uh, the prophecy that our Savior is first of all thinking about. But I think these... These terms, bright and morning star, describe him in his person as God and man, but especially in his work. It's talking about how he came and dawned upon this dark world in in his incarnation and his ministry. Remember, he's the light. How many times did he use that analogy about him being the light? We're the light in a borrowed sense. He's the light essentially. In other words, salvation's in him. Remember, he even said that at one point, that that the Father has, as it were, deposited in me life. I give it because I earn it as the God-man in my life and death. But it's not just historically that he comes uh, and dawns upon a, uh, a dark world, remember he says, Them, He says, those that lived in darkness saw a, a great light. Remember he quoted that? Or that's, a, that's quoted of him in Matthew 1 or 2? Maybe 3. Somewhere early in Matthew. But elsewhere, this imagery of Jesus dawning in the darkness and bringing light is applied to our salvation, our personal salvation. So he dawns in our heart. He comes as the God-man, as the root and offspring of David, as the one who alone was, was, was capable to, to earn the salvation. He dawns by his spirit in our dark hearts, and he brings salvation. Now, you know, the scriptures use that imagery all over the place to talk about our salvation. Probably one of the most famous places. If you turn back to Second um, Peter one, James John oh, it's, uh, before John's isn't it? Yeah, Second Peter one, verse Second uh, Peter one nineteen, and we have this prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. The scriptures are spoken of as light because they tell us about this one who is the light of the world. And he dawns in our dark hearts and he brings with him the morning of salvation. And so I think Jesus is simply underscoring who he is in terms of his person and his ministry. And because of that, he has the right to reveal this through his angel, to his churches. I, uh, verse 16 again, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. Remember, this letter was to be read in those seven churches, which were representative of all churches of all time. Remember the first uh, couple of chapters... You have those specific letters that were to be sent to those specific churches. But the whole of the book of Revelation, as we know it, was to be sent to and read in the churches. And brother, that just goes back to what I've tried to say over these last weeks. This letter was intended to be read and understood. And it would have been far better understood by, new, by first century Christians because they didn't have all the nonsense taught us in the last hundred years, to put it plainly. Now that brings us then to our main point. Verse 17. And one of my favorite verses in the whole of scripture. A gracious invitation. And the spirit of the bride say come. And let him who hears say come. And let him who thirst come. Whoever desires let him take of the water of life freely. Okay by spirit is the Holy Ghost. By bride is the church. So it's talking here about how. The Holy, how Christ, by His Spirit, speaks through His church. I'm going to come back to that in a minute, but I just want to quickly explain the verse, and then I want to come back and look at the particulars. Okay, so, and it says, and let him who hears say come. It talks about the one who hears the gospel invitation, believes it, now he joins in inviting others. And let him who thirst come. This is what they tell the world. This is what they tell sinners. Thirsty sinners, like Jesus said, if any man thirsts, let him come to me. And then this, this is a phrase we want to spend a lot of time on, uh, most of our time. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. Because this text, this is a text that's sometimes leveled at uh, the reformed camp by the other side. As if this just dismantles the rest of the Bible. But we're going to see it doesn't dismantle anything. This is a, a great text, a great Calvinistic text. Just a great invitation that Calvinists have always loved. In fact, I want to do a little historical study tonight, mostly. And uh, I want to start with this uh, kind of premise. And that is that most Christians are ignorant about what we call Calvinism entails. All right, so I think all of you know what I mean by Calvinism. It's that system attributed to Calvin um, and the canons of Dort. That's the historical sources for Calvinism that teaches the five points or the five doctrines of grace. Now, obviously, it's in the Bible, these, this, these doctrines, and, and I think all of us know that. <laughs> But I'm talking historically at this point. We, we, we're not afraid of history, right? We're, we're a church that believes that history has its place. Historical theology has its place. Woe be to the person who gets too big for his britches that he doesn't need historical theology as an as a, as a, as a, uh, influence upon his own understanding of the scriptures. Right? That's a lot of Christians today. Well... We don't, we don't need no creed, just Christ. We don't have a confession. We just believe the Bible. Well, then you're the only ones for the last 2,000 years We thought like that. And you can go out on the limb and be by yourself if you want to. But there's reasons why all Christians were creedal and confessional. There's a reason. Because Jesus has gifted his church with teachers. And that didn't just start yesterday. It started way back from the beginning. And so, when the best of Jesus' gifts have come together to write a statement, then you might, you might do well to listen to it or to at least uh, consider it, which I know I'm preaching to the choir. So, this is really just to encourage you to, to hold tightly to these things that you believe. Okay, but I said, and I stand by that statement, that most Christians are ignorant about Calvinism. And they either err on one of two sides or extremes. Over here they mischaracterize it as if everybody is coming to Jesus and God is saying you can't come because you're not elect and and all of that other lies and distortions. Right? I, 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 somebody just sent me a sermon not long ago, another guy he was going after these evils of Calvin, this evil system of Calvinism. And he didn't even have a clue as to what we believe. It was just ridiculous. I actually listened to it to just laugh out loud for at least 10 or 15 minutes. And I couldn't take it any longer. Because he's just so mischaracterized us. Like, have you ever read Calvin? Have you ever read anybody who articulates these doctrines? He, he made everything, the, he, he cast everything in the worst light In fact, in the wrong light, not just the worst, but the wrong light. But then there's other Calvinists on the other side who especially may have come into the systems recently and they don't know how to explain invitations like verse 17 because their understanding of Calvinism is too strict. So, you have those on the left who just don't understand it and they mock it. Woe be to them, quite frankly. I mean, the things this man is saying is unbelievable. He's calling this wicked lies and devilish system. I'm thinking, man, and, and to show his ignorance, he's like, nobody ever believed this. It, it, it just originated with Calvin. It's like, really? It originated with Calvin. You know, the church was in existence 1,500 years before Calvin, and, and all the major players taught this. But there's some on the other side who have too too rigid of a, quote, Calvinism, and they don't know how to appreciate these broader texts. You see, again, Calvinism, historically defined, comes from the canons of Dort and John Calvin. Or you can put it the other way around in terms of, because Calvin came first, right? He lived in the 1500s, and the canons of Dort were written in the early 1600s. So what I want to do is to, um, because this text, somebody, somebody says to us, well, how do you guys interpret this text? The, the Armenian will, will, will throw this text at us as if we're, we're somehow afraid of it. And then there's other younger, especially Calvinists, who don't know how to respond biblically and historically to this text. And they come up with some foolish interpretation that restricts it in such a way that it gives ammunition to the other side and say, look, these guys don't even believe these things. Well, to you young Christian who's way over here, who's who's afraid of and doesn't rejoice in texts like this. Let me correct you. And to the Arminian on the other side, who says you Calvinists don't believe texts like this and um, your system doesn't allow for texts like this. Let me correct you as well. And I want to do so largely from those sources, from Calvin and the Canons. And I want to suggest that we find in this text, verse 17, a threefold invitation. A threefold invitation that's first, universal, secondly, gracious, and thirdly, sincere. Brethren, this is a a real invitation for all men who come beneath the sounding of the gospel to come to Jesus and be saved. We believe that. Every Calvinist, well, the bulk of Calvinists, the balanced Calvinists, certainly Calvin himself, believe that. And the canons of Dort teach that. So I'm, getting, I'm going to restrict my, my thinking to those two terms, those, t- those two sources that historically define Calvinism, all right? And so let's go through them in turn. First, it's universal. And by this I mean the gospel comes as an invite. Now, it does come as a command, too. That's true, doesn't it? In fact, we read just recently in one of the verses prior, a little earlier, about in, in Romans 2, about those who don't obey the gospel. They don't obey the gospel. Because the gospel comes as a commandment. Believe. Believe what God says about you. Believe what God says about Jesus. Believe what God says about him. Believe what God says about heaven and hell. And if you don't believe it, you're going to be doubly guilty for it. But here it's an invitation, and it's both an invite or a summons, as well as a commandment. The preaching of the gospel comes to every creature. Okay, Every person who providentially is the object of, of the gospel preaching, the gospel message, because obviously, like we said already, according to that text in Romans 2, a little later, there are those who die without ever hearing the gospel. So when we talk about the universality of the gospel, we're not saying everybody hears the gospel. We're saying that everybody should hear the gospel. That's the whole point of the Great Commission, that we're to take the gospel into the whole world and to preach it to who, Jesus said? Every creature. Every creature. Every person should hear the gospel. That's the point. And so this invitation is universal in its scope. Within the gospel, the gates are opened to all men. Now just go back to the imagery of verse 14. And may uh, have the... Uh, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. What we're saying to sinners is this. In Christ, you'll have forgiveness. In Christ, you'll have a righteousness. In Christ, you'll have the Holy Spirit who will sanctify you. In Christ, you will have the right to the tree of life. And you'll have access into the city. Brethren, that's what the gospel is. So the gospel message is a message about who Jesus is and what He's done, but it always comes with it the invitation or the command, the exhortation to receive it. Let's put it that way. And if you, and it also comes with the promise: if you receive it, you'll be saved. So it's not just okay when we're to go. Jesus said, go make disciples. Jesus said in Mark 16, preach the gospel to every creature. What is the gospel? Well, that's a good question, isn't it? The gospel is a message about what God has done for sinners in Christ. The gospel concerns who Jesus is and what he's done. Again, to summarize it in verse 16, the message of the gospel is that Jesus is the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. So you're to tell sinners who he is and what he's done. You are to tell sinners he's the God-man who came to earth as the last man, the the, 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 the second man, the last Adam. And He lived a perfect life in our place. He died a sacrificial death for us on the cross. And He promises for us, if we repent from our sin, turn away from trusting in ourselves, and come to Him solely by faith, He will not only forgive us for our sins and give us a righteousness whereby we're accepted with the Father, but give us the Holy Spirit. He Himself will come and live in our hearts and empower us to obey His commandments. And then he'll give us what? The hope of eternity with him in the new heavens and earth. Brother, that's the gospel. The gospel is the message about who Jesus is, what he's done. And it always, and it always exhorts the hearer to receive it. And it always promises them salvation if they believe it. So it's not just facts. But it comes with invitation, according to verse 17. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Do you desire to make peace with God through Christ? Do you desire to get right with God the gospel way? Not any way, but the gospel way? Do you desire to turn from your sin and come to God through Christ? Do you desire that? Well, then this text says, do so, and guess what? You'll be saved. Brethren, that's Calvinism. And woe be to any supposed Calvinist who has a problem with that. Because if he does, he has a problem not with Calvin or the canons, though he does. He has a problem with Revelation 22 and verse 17. And many other other texts, doesn't he? Listen to the canons of Dort. Moreover, the promise of the gospel is. Moreover, the promise of the gospel is that whosoever believes in Christ crucified shall not perish, but have everlasting life. This promise that if you believe in Jesus crucified, you'll have life eternal this promise, listen, together with the commandment to repent and believe, ought to be declared and published to all nations and to all persons promiscuously. Now, that, that's a term we don't use. And, and when we do use it, it's usually in a negative light. You can see what it means with the next, in the next, if you compare it with the next phrase. And without distinction. Promiscuously. And without distinction. It really means here without discrimination. Okay, let me read it that way. To all nations and to all persons without discrimination and without distinction to whom God, out of his good pleasure, sends his gospel. Again, so the, so the document uh, assumes the fact that not everybody is going to hear the gospel. And those who hear it, hear it because of God's providence. But what are they to hear? They're to hear... The, the, the doctrine of the gospel about Jesus and Him crucified. And then they're to hear, you need to repent and believe it. And then, and then they need to hear, and you'll be saved if you do. Again, brethren, that's where we get Calvinism from the canons of Dort and Calvin. Listen to the latter. Listen to Calvin commenting on Luke 2 and verse 10. Just as at the present day, God invites all indiscriminately to salvation through His gospel. But the ingratitude of the world is the reason why this grace, which is equally offered to all, is enjoyed but by few. Now you can find everywhere. In fact, we're going to read a place here in a minute where Calvin speaks about the electing love of God. and, And he speaks about how election is what determines who will and won't be saved. That's true. We believe that. Calvin believed that. But here he's placing stress on the responsibility of man. And he says, the ingratitude of mankind who hears this salvation offered to him indiscriminately in the gospel, he, he's to be blamed as to why he isn't saved. There's another letter a statement that's, classic, that's a classic statement by Calvin on this. And it's often quoted and alluded to. It's actually found in a letter that he wrote to his friend Melanchthon. Some of you know Melanchthon was the disciple of Luther. And they had some lively discussions and letters back and forth. Uh, you'll find them in that eight-volume set of tracts and letters. I think there's a set in the, in the library. Uh, this is what he said to Melanchthon. Nothing is more certain, brother. I just—it just—it it, it does sadden me to think that people don't read Calvin; they just talk about Calvin. No, read him. Read, read, read Calvin, and you're going to find him to be probably altogether different than what you might think. Nothing is more certain than that the gospel is addressed to all promiscuously. There's our term. Nothing is more certain than that the gospel is addressed to all without discrimination, but that the spirit of faith is bestowed on the elect alone. Now listen to how he weds those together. He isn't afraid of either. Look, nothing is more clear. Nothing's clearer than this. The promise of the gospel is given to all men without discrimination, but only the elect will receive it. And then he goes on to say, the promises are universal and make an offer of the grace of Christ equally to all. Okay, so the gospel in its proclamation comes to all people. There's elect and unelect in a group, right? And that gospel comes to all equally. The the promise of it. So what he's saying is that this this message of salvation comes to all men. This is the whole point of universal and without distinction and without discrimination. See, some would say that this promise that if you believe the gospel and be saved only comes to the elect. That God doesn't mean it to the reprobate, the non-elect. That's a lie. It's not only a lie if you compare it with Calvin and the canons, but more than that, John and Jesus and all the other Holy Spirit inspired writers. Whoever desires, whoever's thirsty, anybody and everybody who knows their need of salvation, come, and if you come, you'll be saved. And God, by the external call, listen, invites by the external call, invites all who are willing to accept his salvation. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Now, brethren, obviously nobody's going to desire to come except the Holy Ghost makes them thirsty. That's true. Nobody's thirsty by nature. Nobody knows and desires salvation left alone. God has to work it in their hearts. But the gospel message isn't you can come only if the Holy Spirit has made you thirsty. That's how some people twist this. And they say that the promise of the gospel is, to only, is only to be given to, to those who evidence repentance, because that shows they're elect. So they don't say to a, 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 a crowd, a mixed crowd, indiscriminately, they don't say, if you believe, you'll be saved. Because for them, the non elect, Won't believe or can't believe and won't be saved. But, brethren, again, that just in every way throws the whole thing up on his head. If you have, that's hyper Calvinism. That's by, if hyper Calvinism, one of the tenets of hyper Calvinism is that the gospel isn't preached and there isn't a promise tendered or offered to the non elect. And in fact, the hyper-Calvinist even denies that it's the responsibility of the non-elect to believe the gospel. Because gift, uh, because faith is a gift. And so they say, the, 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 the non-elect can't believe. And so, they deny what's called duty faith or the fact that it's the duty of the sinner to believe. It is the duty of the sinner to believe. The fact that he can't believe will only render him Doubly guilty in the day of judgment. Yes, that's true, brethren. But the gospel offer is extended to all men indiscriminately. And it comes to all men equally as as an offer of salvation if received. Now, if your Calvinism has a problem with this, correct it. Correct it. Because you have an unbalanced Calvinism. And yours isn't that of John's or the Canons. Or better yet, of the book. This one. Correct it. And that's why when you read our fathers, brethren, especially in the Puritans, in Calvin, and the Puritans, they preach the gospel indiscriminately and openly to everybody, every sermon. For the life of me, I can't even begin to fathom a supposed Calvinists can deny the universality of the gospel offer and claim to be reformed and claim to be in the very tradition of Calvin and the Puritans. It's unbelievable to me. What they do is they take all of the passages from Calvin, and all of these passages from the canons, and they reinterpret them and distort them, just like the Arminian does to the, to the Bible. The hyper-Calvinist is just as bad. In fact, I would even argue worse than the Arminian. If I had to choose, and you don't have to, but if I did, I'd much rather be a warm hearted gospel preaching Arminian than a stingy, unloving, because they're always stingy and they're always unloving, hyper Calvinist. It's gracious. And here I'm especially referring to this last word freely. This word freely means without cost or without cause. See, we think of it without cost, and it is that. Remember, without cost. But it's without cause. In other words, you don't have to have any warrant to come except the naked promise of God. See, the hyper-Calvinist says, only the thirsty can come, and so you have to make sure you're such and such thirsty before you can accept of the offer. But that's... But that's putting the sinner to look inside instead of outside to Christ. So some say the covenant says that your warrant to come is that you thirst. Well, then you have to ask yourself, how thirsty do I have to be in order to come? And sometimes they'll say, well, you have to thirst this much. You have to thirst that much. Rather than surely, we understand nobody's coming unless they're thirsty. But you don't come. You don't come. Having examined yourself and spent weeks, months, years and decades trying to create within you some degree of thirst that you might be worthy to come, that you might have cause to come. No, you come. Come. You say, but what if I'm not thirsty? Well, if you're not thirsty, that is, you don't know that you need a Savior, that's all the more reason to come. Because that just shows how messed up you really are. You're not thirsty. You're not afraid of your sins. You don't feel your guilt. You don't see in Jesus Christ a sufficient Savior. What a wretched person you are, my friend. And I'm telling you tonight, not to go and make yourself thirsty. Not go and look inside until you find something That's the cause or the warrant for you to come. No, you come in obedience, what God tells you now, in and of his word that says, come and come, you'll be saved. It's gracious, brethren. There's no grounds for the sinner to come. There's no warrant for the sinner to come in and of himself. The only grounds, the only warrant you have to come is the naked promise of God, the command of God, the summons, the invitation of God in the gospel. Come and you'll be saved. And if you come, if you come to be saved by a crucified, resurrected Lord, my friend, saved you of certainty will be. See, the hyper-Calvinist again, see, this is stuff that you read throughout the centuries. The hyper-Calvinist is the one who's going to send you away to make yourself thirsty. Go and eat a bunch of salt for 20 years, and then when you're thirsty enough, then you can come. Don't offer the gospel but to those who are thirsty. Don't offer the gospel to those but who are evidencing their elect. That's nonsense, brethren. It's not the Calvinism of our fathers. It's not the Calvinism of this text. But the third, and we're out of time, but this is my... my, I I really want to come to this third point. It's not only uh, universal and gracious, but it's sincere. And uh, I'm thinking first of the uh, beginning part of verse 17. And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. The Spirit, capital S, that is the Holy Ghost, and the Bride, that's the church... Say, come. That means Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, through his church, is the one who invites sinners to come. Now, keep in mind, who does he invite? Everybody. It's universal, it's gracious, it's free. Who does Jesus invite? Who does Jesus invite? Every person to whom the gospel comes. Now let me show you this very quickly, a few texts. Back up to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20. 2 Corinthians 5, 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We beg you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. This is Paul giving a summation of what he tells people. All right, be reconciled to God. That's the gospel message. That is, be reconciled through a crucified, resurrected Savior who's God and man. Be ye reconciled to God. That's the message. But notice he preaches it. Right, he preaches it. But notice who ult- notice who ultimately preaches it. Paul understood that when he preached the gospel, it was as if he were what begging, brother. That's what the term means. Entreat. To plead with, to beg on behalf of Jesus. Brothers, this is, this is the Calvinism of our fathers. And that's why you have a Whitfield standing with his hands raised over 10, 15, 18, 20,000 hearers with his hands raised and tears flowing from his eyes as he pleads and he pleads and he pleads and he pleads with sinners to come to their senses and to come to God through Christ for salvation. Why is it that the preacher, let me put it like this, the preacher ought to want his hearers to believe it. And the reason why the preacher ought to want his hearers to to believe it, you know why? Because Jesus, Jesus desires his hearers, to believe it and be saved. But you say, how can it be that Jesus desires those to be saved who were not elected? Right? That's the question. Well, brethren, it's not like people haven't thought about that question <laughs> I wish I had the time. I could have brought, if you have time, read Calvin's comments on Ezekiel 18, 23 and 32. Where it says, where God says to wayward, wicked, lost Israel. By the way, none of them were elect. All of them were reprobates. And he says that he doesn't desire the death of the wicked. But what he desires is that you turn from your sin and live. That's what he desires. Read what Calvin says on those passages. And what Calvin does is, and rightly so, he makes the distinction between the revealed and the secret will of God. God secretly has willed or desired the salvation only of his elect. But he's revealed for us in the pages of Scripture that which would please him. The revealed will of God is his desire. Now let me ask you this, for example, let me illustrate it quickly. We're going to go a little bit late, but but see, this is this is something I have to kind of get off my chest. In fact, as I was, oh, thank you, Mister Wright. I think I will. Um, as I was thinking about it, I really think it's time for us to have a short series on the five points of Calvinism, and uh, to help us see what is and isn't the truth of that system, as taught by our fathers, but more importantly, the Bible. So there's the secret revealed will of God and there's the revealed will of God in the Bible. These are both God's will, though viewed differently. And let me illustrate it this way. Does God in his word, in his revealed will, command me to love my wife? And isn't that his will for me? Yes. Does he really want me to love my wife? When he commands me to love my wife, does he mean it? Okay, but let's say I go home and I get mad at my wife and I don't love her and I treat her wickedly and wrongly. And I sin against her. Well, in one sense, we can say that was God's will in the sovereign eternal sense, because he decreed. Eternally, everything that comes to pass in time. It doesn't mean that I'm not responsible for it, but nevertheless, he has decreed eternally everything that comes to pass, the good and the bad, the big and the small. God has decreed from eternity past all that happens in time. But, brethren, surely we can't hide behind that and excuse my behavior because he's made it known in the Bible, in the law, in the commandments, particularly, I think, of the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. That includes domestic piety of all sorts. Or you can just go to Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That's his will for me. And when I sin against my wife and... Don't love her as he commands. I'm violating his will. I'm breaking his will. Right? Now you know that the scriptures themselves speak of the Bible as the will of God. And it says that now, 1 Peter 4.2, is the time for us to no longer fulfill the lust of the Gentiles, but to live for the will of God. That means the, the written word of God. And Jesus said, The only ones that go to heaven are those who do the will of my Father, Matthew seven twenty one. So in one sense, God's eternal sovereign will will be done. Ephesians one eleven. He's working everything out according according to the counsel of his own will. That's good, bad, big and little. But there's another sense in which we can look at the revealed will of God as his desire for me. It's God's desire. He's pleased when I obey him, brethren. And he's displeased when, I'm not, when I don't. So when I go home and love my wife from the heart, it pleases God. And when I go home and don't love her from the heart, and I mistreat her wickedly and foolishly, it displeases God. Well, brethren, the same is true with reference to the sinner. The revealed will of God to the sinner is believe it and you'll be saved. And if you do, you'll please him. If you don't, you'll grieve him and you'll be doubly guilty for it. Brother, that's the truth. That's the truth of the Holy Scriptures. And let me show you that from some quotations from first the Canons and then Calvin. Listen to the Canons. As many as are called by the gospel are unfeignedly called. Again, it's archaic terms. Unfeignedly, uh, you can see it's sincerely. To make it, I think the, the simplest way to translate unfeignedly in our modern language is to say sincerely, right? Unfeignedly. As many as are called by the gospel, as many, not just the elect, as many as are called by the gospel. Come to Jesus and be saved. They are unfeignedly called. Now watch it. For God has most earnestly and truly. Brethren, if words mean anything for the life of me, again, I can't believe that there's Christians who don't believe that God desires the salvation of those who hear the message. When, when, when our fathers are so explicitly plain and clear on this. As many as are called by the gospel on a family call. For God has most earnestly and truly shown in his word. See, it's talking about the revealed will of God. It's not talking about his eternal decree. We believe and understand that God's eternal decree will be done without exception. And he's decreed who will and won't go to heaven. Don't. Misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm, I'm stressing kind of the one side of it tonight. The other side's there too. Listen, for God most earnestly and truly shown in his word, what is pleasing to him. Okay, the gospel comes to all men universally and graciously and it promises them salvation unfeignedly. Because God has most earnestly and truly shown in His Word what's pleasing to Him. Namely, now the confession is going to tell us what pleases God. What we read pleases God in the Word. That those who are called should come to Him. That's what He's made known to us, brethren, in His Word. That when the Gospel goes out, He desires that every person who hears it believes it and gets saved. That's why the preacher once, brother, do you really think that the preacher, do you think Whitfield had a bigger heart than God? Do you think Spurgeon, all the great evangelists of days gone by, were more gracious and large hearted than God? The reason Spurgeon had a large heart, a large heart, Whitfield had a large heart, Edward has a large heart, the reason these men, Calvin, had large hearts, Luther, and all the rest, And the reason they wanted their hearers saved, the reason Paul begged with sinners that they would be reconciled to God, is because they were but reflecting in a dim way the heart of their father. God has a big heart towards his fallen creation. And he sends the gospel to them to believe it and be saved. For God has most earnestly and truly shown in his word what's pleasing to him, namely that those who are called should come to him, watch it. He moreover seriously promises. Unfeignedly, earnestly, truly. Now they use the word seriously. He moreover seriously promises eternal life and rest to as many as shall come to him and believe the gospel. Unfeignedly called earnestly and truly shown in his word what will please him. Moreover, he seriously promises, he seriously promises eternal life to every person who hears the gospel. Listen to me, young person who's not a Christian. I promise you, based upon my commissioning orders, based upon the word of God, based upon the heart of my beloved Savior in heaven, if you believe, you'll be saved. Brother, what kind of a system would, would, would muzzle the parent from, from wanting all of his kids saved? How many times have I told my kids? How many times have I told my neighbors? How many times have I told my extended family members, do you know why God saved me in part? So that he would save you, that I would share the gospel with you, and that you would be saved. Brother, woe be to that Calvinist, quote unquote, who can't tell their little ones among other things, that God really wants you to become a Christian. God seriously promises you eternal life and rest if you come to him and believe on Christ. Listen to what Calvin says on 2 Peter 3.9. Remember that phrase, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This is again speaking about his revealed will. Not his eternal will. His revealed will. Listen to what he says. So wonderful is his love towards mankind lost. Oh, I'm going to get very excited over this one. So wonderful is his love towards mankind lost. That he would have them all be saved. And is of his own self prepared to be so to bestow salvation on the lost. But it may be asked, if God wishes none to perish, why is it that so many perish? To this my answer is, that no mention is here made of the secret will of God, but only of his will as made known to us in the gospel. For God there in the gospel, stretches forth his hand without a difference to all. Now watch how he just switches it so easily. But lays hold only of those to lead them to himself who he chose before the foundation of the world. Brother Calvin can put together those two facts in a way that I fear, that's my concern, that some of us can and I want all of us to be able to put those two together equally. Brother, because I do, which do you love more? <laughs> I, I don't have to pick and choose. I can tell everybody and anybody. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. And then when you take the water of life freely and you become a Christian, guess what? Then I tell you the other part. The reason you did is because God chose you from eternity past to be his. And he gifted you in time with faith and repentance. And it was all his work. And he did it only for the elect. And he does it only for the elect. Well, let me close with two things. Because some of that's a little polemic. It's a more defending and, and, and making a case. I would be totally amiss, wouldn't I, if I just taught you about these things and didn't actually preach these things to you. Because this text isn't intended to be a, a, a place of contention and argument. Unfortunately, it has become that. But just take it as it is, brethren. I think most people can come to a text like this and see it. It says this. First of all, all sinners are invited to come to Christ. All sinners are invited to come to Christ. Now all that stuff I was talking about theoretically, now let it come, let it trinkle. Remember what Jesus said at one time? He said, now let what I just taught you sink down into your ears. That's what he told his hearers one time. Brother, just stop and let what I, let, look. Let me put it as plainly as I can. If you desire, if you desire to get right with God, the gospel way, that is, as a hell-deserving, wretched sinner who comes to God solely and only through Jesus Christ, our Lord, listen to me. God promises you tonight that if you repent from your sins and you believe in Christ, you will be saved And let me go further than that. He sent me here tonight to tell you that because according to his revealed will, he desires your salvation. He takes not pleasure in the death of the wicked, but he does take pleasure in the repentance and salvation of a sinner. Now, there's another side to that, isn't it? Secondly, all sinners are extra guilty for not coming. And you know why they're extra guilty for not coming? Because they're bona fide, invited, and commanded to come. See, if if God wasn't serious in commanding and inviting you, then you wouldn't be doubly guilty. But the reason why you're doubly guilty, if you go to the judgment day as an unbeliever, is because God did sincerely offer you salvation repeatedly from the lips of your mom, your dad, and your pastors. Now, we just actually read this. And let me close with it. Uh, We read today, those in the Bible group, we read uh, chapter 12, I think, today, John 12, wasn't it? Oh, no, I can't remember what we read today. Was it? Yeah, 12, okay. Look at verse 48. See, it's like uh, I was telling somebody this. I can't remember who it was. Oh, yeah, now I remember who it was. Um, That the preacher has to um, make sure that he does his devotional reading. And not just his reading that ties into his sermon prep. And so, uh, but, but oftentimes they connect and, and it just happened today to do that. Jesus is talking to these unbelieving Jews. There's nothing to, to, to think that they were elect. They, they hounded him. They were a part of the groups at the end that betrayed him and mocked him all the way to the cross. And, and, and watch what he says in verse 48. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. If you go back and read the words that he's talking about, he's talking about the gospel, who he is and what he has done. Over and again, he says, I've come as the God-man to save sinners. You can just read it in the the previous verse, verse 47. I haven't come to condemn, but I've come to save. He's saying that probably to unelect sinners, reprobates. I've come to save sinners indiscriminately, universally, graciously he tells them that, but he also says this, you know what, if you don't believe what I've told you, guess what, in the day of judgment the very words I speak to you will will be the judge who will be that which judges you more severely. Here's the basic premise as I thought about it. Judgment will be based on light received and the one who's heard the gospel proclamation will be doubly guilty for hearing it and not believing it. And that of necessity, my friend, argues the sincerity of it. It argues the sincerity of it. What a tragedy. It could be. But what a wonderful blessing it should be if you believe it. Don't believe it because Calvin said it. Don't believe it because the 50 or 60 delegates at the, at the canons of Dort said it. Believe it because God says it. That if anyone desires, let him come and be saved. And that without a single exception. Brethren, isn't it a wonderful truth? What a privilege we have as Christians. And this does tie into what we'll talk about this Sunday. About evangelism, personal evangelism. So just keep kind of take, uh, I went long, but you can just take all what I said to you tonight and kind of put it as a preface to what I'm going to say to you this Sunday when we come to our Christmas sermon, and that is Church Life Part 9. Well, we're going to have to skip our song because we want to...